0: Okay, I want to draw your attention to two things now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in your Bibles. We were in uh, the Old Testament this morning, and now we are in the New Testament. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then we're going to pick up where we left off in our catechetical series, and we are going to be looking at Q&A 87 of... Um, our catechism as we go through uh, the catechism in our afternoon uh, 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 services. This is, uh, and I say this periodically, I'm going to say it again, that, that our catechetical time is really important because a lot of times when I, when I interact with individuals who are either inquiring about the Christian faith or even among you have maybe been part of this, uh, many of you have been part of this church for a while, a lot of times questions arise where I kind of go, oh... You know, the, 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 the catechism of which we have actually kind of deals with that. So the Bible not only deals with answers to your questions, but the catechism does as well. And so it's important for us to, to have a firm doctrinal foundation for our faith, not only for our own benefit, but also because, as we saw this morning, if we're going to know what to say to those outside the faith as being a light to the nations, we need to know what we believe, right? So, this is all very important. Alright, right, First um, Corinthians chapter 6, what I want to do is I want to begin at verse 1. You'll remember last Sunday we saw the very intimate connection between faith and life talk and walk. They are never divorced in the Bible. There's always an intimate connection. But the question that we're going to address tonight is, what happens if there's a disconnect? What happens if there is an actual divorce between faith and life, talk and walk? Then what? What are, the, what are the repercussions of that? We're going to be looking at that. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, a church in Corinth, Greece, which, by the way, Uh, provides huge challenges for him, because it is a church that, among other things, has a number of believers in it, or Christians in it, who are not getting along. In fact, they're not getting along uh, to the point where they're actually um, presenting lawsuits against each other and bringing it to secular courts. And the Apostle Paul is like, what are you doing? You get his attitude here, Verse one: When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to um, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brothers go to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Now, especially verses 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we're going to end reading there. You're going to find that this language, especially verses 9 through 11, is reflected in large measure in q a 87. So that's up there. That's good. Now, here's the question, and then um, I'd like us to out loud uh, say together the answer. So here's the question Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? And let's say it together By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. All right, I just noticed something. Kids, I want you to take a look um, up at the screen here. Uh, go back, please. There you go. Um, take a look at the answer. The Bible says, that is, Scripture says that no unchaste person Da-da-da-da-da shall inherit the kingdom of God. You know what the word unchaste means? I think some maybe you're learning to read, or maybe you're six, seven, eight, nine years old, and you look at sometimes you find words like, I don't know what that means. Unchaste means just impure, immoral. Okay? And so you'll notice now, addressing all of us here, that the, the the language there in answer 87 is really direct and it's uh, uncompromising. What is it saying? It's saying, do not be deceived. That is, uh, in today's language, don't, don't kid yourself. The unrighteous, what does that mean? The unrighteous are those who are not living a life in conformity with God's desires. And those whose lifestyle does not reflect a genuine walk with Jesus. Don't kid yourself. If you have that kind of lifestyle, if you are unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the the kingdom of God is is a broad concept in the Bible, but here I think in a narrow way, it's simply pointing to eternal life. The flourishing of our lives in heaven and ultimately the new creation. If you are unrighteous, if that is your lifestyle, don't kid yourself, that is not going to be your end. Period. So, you notice um, there are many times in preaching... Where there's encouragement for us to walk with the Lord and we talk a lot about the, the blessings of walking with Jesus and the blessings of eternal life with Jesus and all of this. But there's always the other side of the coin that we have to deal with because the Bible is very clear about this and you probably, many of you know this already, Jesus actually speaks about more about hell than he does about heaven. So if he does that, then always we need to take our cues from Jesus, and we got to look at the reality of judgment, we got to look at the reality of hell, and we got to look at the reality of these words, which are, again, very direct and uncompromising. Don't you kid yourself. If you are unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't, don't, don't think that God is just so loving and, and happy all the time, and kind, and you know what? He's going to grade on the curve, and it's like, if you're just living that kind of life, it's just all going to be okay in the end. You know, he's He's a loving God. It's not what the Bible teaches. Okay? Now. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that there's not encouragement in, in the text and the catechism. I'll get to that. So we're gonna look at the bad news first and then we're gonna look at the good news. Um, all right, let, let's very quickly, who let's set the context here. Who is let's go back to the the the, the, the Bible passage from first Corinthians six. Who's the apostle Paul talking to here when he talks about you know, don't kid yourself, don't be deceived. Well, um, he is, the, the, there's an application to everyone in the world, but more specifically, the Apostle Paul is dressing the church, he's dressing us. And, you know, the, the Apostle Peter says, judgment begins not with the world, it actually begins with the church of God, it begins with us. So we need to evaluate our lives very closely, and the Apostle Paul is doing that with the church in Corinth. Now, um, what do you let's 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 set the 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 cultural context here and the geographical context. See, Apostle Paul is addressing the the church, but more particularly, he's addressing the church in a place called Corinth, Greece. What do you know about Corinth? Okay, so Corinth was a business center. It was a, into it and out of it. It was a place of entertainment, and it was a religious center, okay? And as far as the religious center was concerned, uh, it was, uh, uh, Corinth was very no, well known for a very large temple devoted to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and it said that that temple was staffed by around 1,000 prostitutes who would go into the city of Corinth at night and ply their trade. So... Maybe to put it in a modern context, when you, when you and I think of Corinth, just um, probably think of Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, I don't know if you know about Las Vegas, Nevada, but whenever you mention Las Vegas, what's the first thing you think of? You think of gambling, right? And you think of the Strip, right, where i got all the hotels and all the all the other businesses relating to the gambling industry. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Las Vegas is a very large metro center today. It was a dot on the map in the 50s and the 60s when it was really getting off the ground. It's over a million people now, sprawling neighborhoods. Um, of course, there is the Strip, so it's, it's, it's not only a, a large population center, which Corinth was at the time, but, but um, You know, Las Vegas uh, is um, a place, obviously, of the gaming industry, the entertainment industry, and, of course, the sex industry. A lot of sex workers working out of there. Okay, why do I bring that out? This is exactly Corinth. This is Corinth. Um, one, one commentator writes this about Corinth. Can you put up um, the, the quote on there by uh, uh, commentator John MacArthur? This is what he writes. Even to the pagan, the city of Corinth was known for its moral corruption, so much so that in classical Greek, the word, the word Corinthia zestai, that is to behave like a Corinthian, came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. The name of the city was synony- uh, synonymous with moral depravity. So why do I bring all that out? To simply say this. It's very interesting when you read the book of Acts, and especially the bold, the apostle Paul, it's not like they looked at a city like that and wrote it off and said, well, that's lost. (laughs) What did he do? It's like, that's exactly the place where we need to plant a church. So he planted a church there. And the, the thing about the church in Corinth, when you examine it, is that um, and again, you may not know this, but the book of 1 Corinthians is one of the first books um, written in terms of the, the, the work and the presence of the early church. So it's older than other books. And so what, what you get in the church in, of Corinth, when you read it, you have to put your mind to the task of remembering that, oh, that's that's the earliest of the early church. So what I'm saying there is that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is going out, and people are beginning to embrace it. And so the, the church of Corinth was filled with a number of recent, young, immature converts who had basically taken their former lifestyle, the way that I just described it, and they, they came to know Jesus, but what they did at the same time is they took a lot of the baggage of their culture with them into the church. Now you've got to have kind of a divided people. You have a people say, Well, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, but at the same time they were still engaging in some forms of immorality. In fact, in fact, there is even a case of incest in the church that the Apostle Paul had to deal with. I mean, not a fun thing to deal with. So this this, this is the context here of what they're kind of struggling with. A lot of sins within, within the church. Now You'll notice that um, our passage, if, I, if we deal with the text now, just verses 9-11, through 11, you notice when you look at that, there are a number of what I would call substantial sins there. And I call them substantial because these are the kinds of sins that actually undermine God's created order for things, and they very much darken the soul, and if left untreated and unrepented of, then what happens is that that left a person outside the kingdom of God. So it's, it's a very serious situation here. So he, he mentions a number of substantial sins, and what's the first one that he mentions here? He mentions sexual immorality. That's, that, he begins very generally, because like sexual immorality, there's all kinds of sexual, sexually immoral things going on in the world. So he doesn't really define it. The, the word in the, in the original language is porneia, from which we get our English term pornography. So, he doesn't define exactly what he's alluding to in sexual immorality, but you can guarantee that the various forms of sexual immorality that we find in our culture today, and I'm not going to list them now, but those, those very things were happening in, in Corinth. But then as you move on in the text, he moves from the general to the more specific. So, he mentioned sexual immorality, and then he mentions specifically adultery, which is having sex with someone other than your spouse. He mentions idolatry, which is basically setting your heart's affections on on things that, that are part of the creation, that God put in the creation, and oftentimes are very legitimate to enjoy, but we enjoy them to such an extent that we actually become consumed by them to the point where God, who should be at the center of our lives, is pushed to the periphery of our lives. So you have... Adultery, if sexual immorality, and then the final thing um, that he mentions here is is a very dicey issue today, and it's homosexual practice. At least that's the translation that is used here in the ESV. Now, to to touch a little bit more on this, when he mentions homosexual practice, um, you may have a translation of the Bible that translates this differently. There are actually two words here in the original language that are used... Um, under the heading homosexual practice. One is malakoi, which means um, uh, soft or effeminate. And then the second word is arsenokoitai, which refers to the sexual act itself in a same-sex relationship. Now, these words are, are typically, I don't know if you ever read online in some of the debates that go on, but this, this is, these are admittedly difficult words to know exactly what they refer to. This is why if you have a footnote in your Bible, it may say something like this, that when it talks about malakoi, soft, effeminate, and then the other one, arsenikoitai, um, uh, refers to the sex act itself in the same-sex relationship, that if you put those two together, some commentators believe that that, and I'll be careful here, but it refers to, to the active and also the passive recipient in the same-sex act. Or... Those words together may simply refer to those in a general way who engage in same-sex relationships and practices that undermine God's natural created order for sexual desire and sexual acts that is male and female. So anyway, the Apostle Paul uh, addresses these things here. And again, What's interesting that as you, as you, especially if you're a new Christian and you begin to explore the Bible, there's a number of things that may be shocking to you, many things that may not. But the thing is, is that what I what I usually tell people who are first coming to faith and they want to learn about the Bible, I just tell them there's going to be a lot of things in the Bible that you're going to read and that you may be shocked because you hear Holy Bible and you think you're just going to read about all these kind of pure things when in fact the Bible talks about a lot of immorality and a lot of sins and the very things that we find in the world today you're going to find right here in this book happening in the case of Corinth about 2,000 years ago. So I always say this is a very realistic book and it provides not only a realistic view of the world in which we live but the antidote and the answers to the difficulties that the world faces and offers the solution in Jesus. And the solution is forgiveness, and the solution is flourishing. Not sorrow, not misery, not enslavement, but flourishing. All right, moving on. The Apostle Paul also mentions a few other sins here, and in here here's some others. And it's usually the case, isn't it, that when we look at sin, somehow the the... the, the Sex-related sins kind of just kind of grab our attention, and they seem, especially at times, kind of uh, kind of worse sins than the others. Kind of dirty sins. But Paul mentions other things here as well. He, he mentions theft, greed, drunkenness, and he talks about revilers. What are who are revilers? They're, the reviler is one who just abuses others with their speech. Sometimes you you hear about uh, troubled marriages and you hear about emotional abuse or uh, sexual abuse or sometimes there's verbal abuse. A reviler is one who engages in verbal abuse. Then he mentions swindling, that is, one who uses force and violence to steal. So anyway, we could go on, I mean, I mean, if you really want to talk about different sins that we may experience, the world experiences, I mean, the list could be, like, you know, really long. We could take, you know, an hour or more talking about that. So the list that we have here is representative. they are just representative. Now, a quick comment about the sins that he mentions here. Again, I want to say they're nothing new. And I, I also want to say this, and I will oftentimes tell new Christians this. I say, if, you're going to, if, you, if, if you want to come to Pathway, for instance, as an example... Wonderful. Glad to have you. But I want you to let you know that while there are many wonderful people, the people here, and myself included, you're going to see inconsistencies and you're going to see warts in our lives. And why do I say that? Because it's not only true, but it's because every church experiences this, including the church in Corinth. right? If you look at the church today, you're going to find things like premarital sex. You're going to find adulterous affairs. You may find same-sex relationships, greed, drunkenness, general idolatry all of that. It's part of our lives at times. So again, these are things that we not only find out in the culture around this, but you find sometimes seeping within the body of Christ. All right. But the Bible, as we see here in this passage, provides a different ethic, different moral way of living, and it also offers a dire warning. And it says this, okay, the culture through the media And just observation, it's just constantly trumpeting the legitimacy of a lot of things that the Bible calls immoral. And what Paul is saying is, whatever vibes you're getting from your surrounding culture, always remember, and we saw this this morning in terms of our mission task, God has called us as a people for his own possession to be a holy nation. What is holiness? Holiness means that we are to live as a contrast people, that we are to live as a people not divorced from the culture altogether where we have no contact with it, but we are to live in a distinct manner that we're not going to follow the trends and the vibes of the culture, but we're going to say, you know what, I serve a different master. I serve a different master. So if you're going to serve the master of the world, then Paul says, then don't kid yourself. You're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. Just telling you, you're not. Serve the master. Serve the master. Serve the master. But also this, you ever notice that this is the vibe always and the message that the culture gives us. The message of the culture is this, if if you're going to be a Christian, then then you're under all kinds, and they don't understand it correctly, but you're going to be under all kinds of rules and regulations. You're a holy people, right? You got to do this and don't do that. I mean, listen to the commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Who wants to live like that? But you know what? If you want to live the secular life, then you're going to be free. So that's what our culture tells us. Be a free, be a free person, right? You don't have to live under those rules and regulations. Let go of God. And so it promises freedom, but isn't it interesting? And we'll just st- stick with the sexual sins here. If you engage in this kind of, these kind of sexual sins and a sexual lifestyle outside the parameters that God sets, which is marriage, while the world promises you freedom, what do you actually get? You get enslavement. While it promise is flourishing, what are you going to get? You're going to get sorrow and misery. While well, it promise you life, live the life, man, what are you going to get? You're going to find yourself outside the kingdom of God. You know, the door of the kingdom of God will be, be closed. And so, so what you find in, in the Bible, out of concern for our lives and our flourishing, the Bible is always encourages, encouraging us Be a holy people. That's where life is. Because if you practice something else, it does not end well. Let me give you two other examples of that. Would you put the the passage from Galatians up there, please? There you go. Take a look at this. Very similar to what we have in our passage. Again, written by the Apostle Paul. Now, the works of the flesh, that is the human sinful nature, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, now he's talking about occult, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, there's that word again, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, there's that word, orgies, another sexual reference, and things like these. Now, listen to his words here. Again, very direct, uncompromising. I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all of a sudden, some of us might go, huh, as long as you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You may be a person here who has done some of these things. Does that mean you're outside the kingdom of God? Well, here's the thing. Um, wow. You know, let's say that's a, that's a live mic over here, and I say, everybody come up, and if you have boldness, come up to the mic and confess if you have committed any of these sins or other sins the Apostle Paul talks about here, um, boy, that would be a dicey thing. But, you know, the reality is we probably have a number of us come up to that, and these are not things we like to trumpet. And there's a lot of us probably here that, that kind of, especially those of us in middle age, older years, it's like, you know, we're like David, Lord, forgive the sins of my youth, right? Mm. So if you have done those things, does that mean you're outside the kingdom of God? Not necessarily. You say, why do you say not necessarily? Because there's always the avenue of what we call repentance, which is coming to grips with what you have done or what you have said that's dishonoring to God and maybe even a severe sin and going, you know what, I confess it. I desire forgiveness through Jesus Christ. I embrace him as my Savior and our Lord. I believe that through him I have the forgiveness of sins and then I am in an accepted relationship and a loving relationship with God. Repentance is the bridge to God. No matter what you have done, no matter what you have said, repentance is the bridge to God. Now, the Apostle Paul says here, though, when he says that those who do such things, let's let's remember this: that when that word "do" is used there in the original language, it carries with it the idea which some English translations have adopted. Um, it's referring to practice. It's not. Paul's not saying if you have ever done these kinds of things. Well, you know what? Sorry, you're outside the kingdom of God. No, he's basically saying, whether you are a Christian or not, if your lifestyle reflects the lifestyle of, of the message of the world, and if you live that way unrepentantly, yes, you're outside the kingdom of God. But there's always the call to repentance, the invitation to come, says Jesus. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Okay. Same thing if you take a look at the first John passage very quickly. Put that on next. There you go. Notice this one, no one who is born of God, that is one who has been given life by the Spirit of God, so that the disposition of their heart is changed. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's sin abides in him. What that really is referring to is like, well, we all practice sin, right? There's, not, there's every day we sin against God. But when he's talking about practicing of sin, he's talking about in an unrepentant way. We just don't care. All right, and last phrase is he can't keep sinning because he has been born of God. Now, I want us to move on from that point and and just simply, I want to, this is is the dark news, okay? Here's the good news. And I'm going to be brief with this and then I'm going to conclude and then we're going to have just a little bit of Q&I time, maybe, if you have any questions. The Apostle Paul basically is laying out something that is very dark and very direct and very uncompromising. And he's, he's, Now imagine this, he's talking to the Corinthian church. But then he goes on to say this, and I think, I think this is one of the most beautiful phrases in all the Bible. So he lays all this dark stuff out before the Corinthians, and then he goes on to say, but, an it's it's a qualifier, he says, you engage in these practices, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. And he lays out all these sins. But he says, but such, and that word were is that it's the beautiful word. Such were some of you. In other words, you know what? You used to live in Vegas, you used to live this lifestyle, you used to walk the strip, you used to game, all this kind of stuff. You used to engage in all forms of sexual debauchery. You know what? That's the way you used to be, but now you're different. Such were some of you. But there's another word in there that is very important. He says, such were some of you. So he's, he's, got, he's got, you got the sins in Corinth, but you've got also these sins that, that are part of the baggage of the Corinthian church. So when you, I want to submit to you that when Paul says, such were some of you, he doesn't say such Have been all of you, but no, he says, such were some of you. So I think what he's alluding to is this. He's saying there's sin, there's a lot of sin in the church, but some of you are not engaging in it because you're in Christ. But some of you also, I think, I'm wondering, are engaging in these things still. In fact, he may know very specific examples of that. As I said, there's a case of incest in the church, and the church was making fun of it. And they were not disciplining the guy who was committing that incest. So, yeah, Paul knew of it. But at the same time, Paul says this, and here's our encouragement. No matter what we have done in the past, no matter what we are engaged in now, the call of the gospel is to die to it. And sometimes people, and I've heard this as a pastor, it's like they get this long face, it's like, I'm trying, man. I am trying, and I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm struggling with this. And I'm like, good, because the struggle shows you're alive. If you're not struggling with it anymore, now I got concerns. Because you're struggling it, with it, you know that the Lord is working on you and He keeps calling you no matter how many times you fall into your sin. He keeps calling you to say, just come. He never does this. No matter how many times we sin, He doesn't do this. What he wants to do, is what he does is he looks into our heart and he says, is there sorrow? Is there a desire to die to it? And the Lord says, okay, just keep coming, keep coming. And every time you do, I will. when you come in the name of Jesus, in sincere repentance, I forgive you. If you fall again, keep coming and trust that as you keep coming and keep praying for my spirit, that I'm going to give you that because you're my child, and while you are going to lose some battles along the way, the war is yours to win. That's the encouragement, such were some of you. Because you know what the Apostle Paul says to these Corinthians who had left this life behind? He said, three things have happened to you. You have been washed, you've been sanctified, and justified. You know what that means? Listen carefully, because this is the good news. When Paul says to the Corinthians, you are washed, he's talking about the fact that you have been, through faith in Jesus, your sins have been washed away. You've been sanctified. What does he mean by that? He means that you have been set apart as a Christian now to God and now you've been given the empowering presence of God's Spirit to win those battles against sin. And finally, you have been justified. And what does Paul mean by that? He means that through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven and you are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and now you are in the position of being accepted by God." All those things have been given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he says, now that that's your position and you're standing before God, strive through prayer and the working of God's grace and spirit to live now and practice your position in Christ. Don't let there be anymore the divorce between position and practice, faith, life, talk, walk, but let there be this beautiful connection And live it out. And then you experience this beautiful human flourishing before God. So, two things. Is the the passage severe? Yeah, real severe. But is there hope? There is hope for any one of us who comes to the end of ourselves and cries out to God. It doesn't matter if it's once, twice, or it's a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand times in your life. Keep coming to the throne of Christ. In the name of Christ. And believe as a child of God that He's not done with you yet. He's not done with you yet. So, what do we see? Vice, but we also see victory. We see sin, but we also see grace. In fact, as the Bible says, where sin abounds, what abounds all the more? What? Grace. Grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there, there, are, there are times, Lord, we feel that when we read the Bible or when we hear preaching we get knocked upside the head. And and sometimes, Lord, that may seem rather brutal but it's exactly what the doctor ordered. Because, Lord, we all find ourselves in very compromising positions at times and we all look on, uh, back on our lives at times and we do say with David, Lord, just forgive the sins of my youth. Oh, I have so much regret. It's just embarrassing. But Lord, we, we also thank you for just, um, just uh, the beauty and the comfort of your invitations to draw near to your throne of grace that, like the prodigal, when we find ourselves in the midst of a stinky pigsty, you call us to do what the prodigal did, and that is say, Oh, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my Father. I will return to my Father knowing that as we do, O oh Lord, Heavenly Father, like the prodigal father's son, you will run out to us and embrace us and kiss us and put a robe on us and a ring on our finger and say, My child who was dead is now alive. My child who was lost now is found. How beautiful is that? We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.